This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go, off and running for Sunday, September the 18th. 2011. Welcome to the program. Before we get started, first I want to uh, send out heartfelt uh, condolences uh, to Victor Vigiani and family. Uh, Victor, uh, no stranger to this program, and in fact uh, joins me on a regular basis uh, to discuss UFOs and uh, extraterrestrials. He is, of course, the director of the Zealand uh, News, um, Zealand Communications. And uh, Victor lost his uh, father on uh, Thursday, so I just wanted to, uh, to tell Victor that um, my thoughts and prayers are with uh, him and his family at this very uh, difficult time. And Victor will actually be uh, in, in, in studio uh, with us next week, uh, along with uh, Stephen Bassett from the Paradigm Research Institute. So, uh, Victor, we're thinking about you. Hang in there, buddy. It's a difficult time. doesn't matter how old our parents get. It's never easy uh, to lose uh, a parent. All right, we are, uh, we've got a busy show, so let's get right to it. A little bit later uh, in the program, another regular, no stranger to the show, uh, Nelson Thal, media scientist, archivist to the late Marshall McLuhan, JFK assassination researcher, uh, will be with us to talk about something that happened. We just passed the anniversary, actually, September 2nd, 1998, Swiss Air uh, Flight 111 um, departed JFK and crashed into the Atlantic Ocean just east of Halifax, killing, I think it was 229 aboard. At the time, it was like $57 million they spent on that investigation. Um the uh, the Canadian Air uh, Safety Board, Transportation and Safety Board. And uh, they concluded at that time that it was a fire that brought down the plane. Now, maybe a couple days later, I was working at another radio station that will, be rem- will, will remain unnamed. I brought uh, Nelson Thal onto one of the programs. This was in the days before I was actually on the air. <clears throat> I was a uh, producer. And so I brought Nelson Thal on to talk about Swiss Air and what he 
believed actually happened. He added on good authority that there was a bomb on that plane. And uh, lo and behold, here we are 13 years later, and now a, an RCMP, a former RCMP officer, has come um, before the news media and proclaimed that he has good evidence there was a bomb on that plane. So tonight, uh, not a... Uh, not a slap each other on the back session by any means because this was a tragedy. But um, anyway, Nelson will be with us a little later in the show to talk about what he has learned uh, since and uh, uh, sort of connect the dots for us. And we'll go back in time and look at some other air disasters perhaps. That's Swiss Air 111 with Nelson Thal. And around midnight, we'll uh, hook up, hopefully, down Mexico way with investigative journalist Janet Phelan, and she really covers a lot of ground and uh, uncovers a lot of unpopular truths in the news media, and uh, which might explain why she sort of has been uh, exiled uh, into Mexico. Uh, her latest story uh, pertains to what she calls the multiple violations by the United States of the International Bioweapons Treaty. And uh, we'll make some time for her, I say, as I say, around midnight. Up first, when I was uh, making my travels down in uh, Texas mid-August, mid to late August, I finally got to, uh, to put a face uh, to this next guest's name uh, who's been with me a number of times on the program. He's an internationally renowned clinician, researcher, author, lecturer in the field of dissociation and trauma-related disorders. He's the founder and president of the Colin A. Ross Institute of Psychological Trauma. And uh, his new book is called Military Mind Control, A Story of Trauma and Recovery. And a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Colin A. Ross to The Conspiracy Show. Colin, how are you? I'm good, thanks. You? Wonderful, thank you. And uh, it was great meet- meeting you down in, uh, in Texas. Yeah, Brief, but good. It was brief. Yes, we were on the the whirlwind uh, tour, and uh, we should point out, uh, Colin, that you will be featured in a um, an upcoming episode of the Conspiracy Show television program, which uh, deals okay. with Manchurian candidates, and uh, of course, the TV show uh, season two debuts September twenty eighth on Vision. Um, I'm not quite sure. I'll, I'll look it up a little later, and I'll well, I'll tell you when the Manchurian candidate uh, episode is going to air. Uh, in any event, the new book, Military. Mind control. Now, this comes to you. Uh, this is an actual sort of c- case study. Now, the name right. you've changed the name, obviously. But did this person give you permission? Uh, I mean, do you have to get permission, even if you use a, a pseudonym, to write about this story, or how does that work? Uh, yeah, you have to have permission, and I do have permission. How did you meet this individual? Like, written and verbal permission. Right now, how did you meet this individual? How did they come to you? Uh, she was referred to me in my private practice uh, back in the earliest nineties. Early nineties. So another, another therapist referred her. Okay. What can you obviously, without divulging or betraying any uh, uh, confidences, but what what can you tell us about this individual? Well, everything that I have to say is in the book, and you know she's given permission for me to write about all that, and therefore to talk about all of it. Um, when I first met her. It was kind of a, a standard kind of referral. There was a therapist who had a client and wasn't exactly sure where to go next in therapy. felt like she was kind of at an impasse. And 
the idea was that she would come in for consultation with me, the therapist would, and I'd listen to what was going on and see if I could make some suggestions. And uh, then we quickly decided, well, I should probably meet with the woman, the client. And after meeting with her a couple times, basically we, me, the referring therapist, and the woman herself made a joint decision that it was a little bit complicated for the therapist and it would be better for everybody concerned if it was just transferred over to me. And so what was initially a consultation turned into taking over the case in my private practice and being the primary therapist for her. And, and uh, at what point was it made known to you that sh- this individual may have been a victim of, uh, of military mind control? Uh, I don't remember exactly, but it was relatively early on. Uh, there was a couple of things happened. One is uh, she had dissociative identity disorder, which is multiple personality disorder, which is one of the reasons that she was transferred over to me because I specialize in that. And uh, in her inner world, there was kind of different sectors, which uh, we just kind of gave names to keep track of them. So one sector was called the over here. And that's because of where it was located kind of in her internal world's geography. And the over here was a whole lot of uh, traumatized child personalities who had been involved in, uh, no, this is according to what they told me, I don't have any outside proof of it, involved in some ritualistic abuse by her father and incest at home by her father. And then... uh, in her inner landscape, there was a, a kind of little sector that had a, she didn't know anything about it, but it had a big sign saying, no human entry. So, you know, obviously I thought to myself, well, it must be something important going on in there if there's a big sign saying no human entry. So that's how I first kind of heard about that region and then started gradually entering my way into it. And that's where all the parts were that told the story of the military mind control. And we will get into those those parts and, and discuss the military mind control. And, and I mean, how long has this a type of, of, of case, uh, again, talking about um, uh, trauma, a military mind control or CI mind control victims, I, I mean, how long has this been really a, a, a your specialty? Well, my specialty is not military mind control as such. It's psychological trauma, and it's many, many, many different consequences, one of which could include multiple personalities. And that's the thing that I've kind of focused on the most, most of my books are about. But multiple personality is only one slice of a larger pie of all the many, many ways that people respond to trauma. True, yes. I mean, yeah, I should point out, yeah, trauma is is, uh, your primary a field of, of interest, but right. I guess, um, let me ask this another way. What, what um, I don't know if you can even answer this, but what percentage of uh, dissociation and trauma-related disorders that you see are directly related to military CIA mind control? Um, I don't have an exact number for you, but I would say if people getting referred into my trauma program, uh, under 10%, probably under 5%, but not like, you know, one in a thousand. No. Maybe like 
you know, two, three percent, somewhere in there, something like that. Still, and that's out of like in the program in Dallas. There's hundreds of referrals per year, so we're seeing you know, 10, 15, 20 people a year, sort of, in Dallas. Are you able to? I mean, is there any way to extrapolate that figure? Is it? Can we say, for example, that roughly two to three percent of the general population um, are? Uh, you know, potentially uh, CIA, military, mind uh-uh. control victims? No, that doesn't follow at all. No? Because uh, people with... It just depends a little bit how severe a case you're talking about. So if you're talking about, say, how common is panic disorder in the general population, where people have huge panic attacks, and then you're talking about how often... Does really severe panic disorder come in for treatment? Those are two different things. So you'll have a much higher prevalence of panic disorder out in the general population, uh, say like 2%. But that'll include a lot of cases that are relatively mild. The person's kind of getting by without any treatment or therapy uh, because the panic attacks are not that frequent and not that intense. But then when if you go to an anxiety disorders clinic, you're going to see... The severe cases, they're the ones that get to the specialist. And so the number of cases out in the world can be quite a bit more than the number of severe you know, specialty treatment number cases. When, so, um, sorry. Yeah. There's probably about 1% of the population has dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder, based on several different studies. But that includes a lot of these milder cases than what I see clinically. If you're looking at uh, inpatient levels, complicated, serious, really troubled people, um, we don't have exact figures on that. We know it's about uh, one out of 30 people in a general psychiatric inpatient unit. Of people out in the world, just general population, it's probably somewhere in the general ballpark of in between one out of 500 people and one out of 1,000. And so... If one, two, three out of a hundred people with DID at the inpatient level have are describing mind control, and that's kind of like five percent of one in five hundred, so it's a very small number. Small, but uh, certainly it's like one out of ten thousand people, maybe. All right, small, but obviously not insignificant. Uh, listen, we'll take no, a time no, out. Not nobody, and then and then the thing you have to look at there is what. Do we mean by mind control? How complicated? What does it involve? And we will get into all of those things when we uh, return on the other side. Dr. Colin Ross, my guest. We're talking military mind control. Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
Dr. Colin Ross has authored over 130 professional papers. He's He's been reviewed for numerous professional journals and uh, grant agencies and is a past president of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. And uh, he has appeared in a number of television documentaries, has published essays, uh, a number of works of fiction. And um, But we're here to talk about his uh, new book, Military Mind Control, A Story of Trauma and Recovery. And you may also recall... Uh, his book from 2006, The CIA Doctors, Human Rights Violations by American Psychiatrists. Okay, so uh, what what do we mean by military mind control, Dr. Ross? Well, there's mind control experimentation, and then there's full mentoring candidate programs. So mind control experimentation involves all kinds of different things, and a, a lot of different things involving a lot of different people that's all completely documented. So that would include uh, LSD experiments, for instance, uh, conducted by the Army, Air Force, CIA, etc. And the Army alone, in the uh, mid-'70s, the General Counsel for the Army released to a Senate committee a list of about 125, 130 different compounds that the Army had tested in mind control experiments. And uh, they said that the number of people tested with LSD was about 1,500, but it's actually about, uh, this is the documented figure, about f- more like 4,000. So that's just the Army, just LSD testing 4,000 people. And these are largely unknowing or unwitting participants? Uh, they know they're participating in some kind of experiment, but they're given a very bland account of what it might be and what the effects might be. Uh, so mind control in the most general sense is just anything you do to a person to try and get control of their mind, to force them to cooperate, to answer questions, to participate in whatever it is you want them to participate in. And so that can be done with drugs, with hypnosis, sensory deprivation and isolation, interrogation techniques, uh, electric shock, all kinds of different things. And the number of people who have been involved in that, when you look at uh, the actual documents from the military and the CIA, the number of different compounds and so on, that's got to be either tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people total exposed to some level of mind control experimentation. And does this mind control, aside from the use of psychotropic drugs, also involve, I mean, is it documented, does it also involve some sort of organized uh Ritualistic abuse? Sexual uh, that's abuse? described by people who come for treatment, but not documented. Does it stand to reason that it would involve some sort of sexual abuse? Um, I would say it's somewhere between possible and likely. Uh, the reason I say that is, so what we're talking about here is where people either employed by or contracting with the government to basically create mentoring candidates mostly, uh, are using a variety of different techniques, hypnosis, drugs, etc., etc. And they're also deliberately using sexual abuse and terrorization to make the person more dissociative, make them fragment into pieces uh, so that you can then get control of these pieces and have control of their mind. So uh, there's no objective proof that that's happening, but given all the crazy, insane stuff that is documented, 
and the general knowledge in the field that sexual abuse is a very good way to create dissociation, it seems fairly likely to me that somebody somewhere has used sexual abuse in a mind control program. The, 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 the patients that come to you that um, have discovered or believe or suspect that they are the victim of some sort of mind control experimentation by the military or the CIA or whomever, um, how are they discovering this? Do they simply have an inkling or have they undergone some sort of regression, uh, hypnosis therapy, recovered memory? What, how, how do they learn about it? Uh, there's a whole variety of different ways, and some of them uh, fit the sort of classical false memory picture where you have a very suggestive therapist, a lot of leading questions, uh, maybe hypnosis or other techniques. And so there's so much contamination by the therapist, you really can't say, you know, what comes from the therapist, what comes from the person. But then there's many cases where people uh, just remember either outside therapy, they've already remembered, always remembered a little bit of it, or they just uh, learn about it in the course of finding out about what's going on inside them in therapy without any leading questions or suggestions at all. So there's a whole variety of different ways that people find this out, but they basically find it out inside their own minds. So in, in, in uh, the case study that uh, you're dealing with in military mind control, a story of trauma and recovery, um, wh- wh- what are we going to call this, uh, this person for the, uh, for the purposes of the program? Um, we could call her Susan, I guess. Susan. So, so what was Susan's... Um, what, what was her life like? What was she, when she came to you, what was she, what was she suffering from? I mean, obviously she had multiple personality disorder, but how was that, I guess, manifesting itself in her life? Did she, I mean, how, and how did she suspect that it was military mind control? Um, well, she was, she had dissociative symptoms, but not diagnosed multiple personality disorder. She's a little atypical in that it seems like she had multiple personalities fully formed in childhood and active into her teenage years, but then it, it kind of went into more of a, a quiet, partially shut down mode. So she wasn't actively having amnesia or switching to quotes other people as an adult. What she was in therapy for was a variety of different problems. Uh, a lot of anxiety and panic. So she would, uh, have intense anxiety and intense panic every time she drove to my office. Very uh, socially withdrawn and isolated. So she was so uh, divorced, no kids. She was very, very, very overwhelmed with anxiety and just an isolated, cut-off kind of life. So much so that she would actually go to a um, hairdresser to have her hair shampooed simply to have another person talk to her and touch her. So, like, really anxious, really isolated, really overwhelmed. Uh, She remembered a bunch of sexual abuse by her father. The sexual abuse by the father was corroborated uh, to me by her two sisters and uh, her mother. And her mother, when she was, uh, she was, let's see, 13 or 12, somewhere 13 or 12, I forget, in that 
ballpark, and she disclosed sexual abuse by her father in the home, uh, saying it had just happened. And uh, the next morning, so that was in the evening, the next morning when she came downstairs for breakfast, her mother talked to her about it, and she had no memory of either the incest or ever telling her mother that she was a victim of incest. And her mother basically divorced her father, like moved out, separated, got divorced right then. So there was pretty, there was solid agreement by three sisters and a mom that there was incest. Now, how, not that there's such a thing as, you know, run-of-the-mill incest or sexual abuse. It's all unimaginably horrific. But how does one separate the the case of, dare I say, an, an ordinary case of uh, incest or sexual abuse uh, from one that is being orchestrated by the military or the CIA? Well, it's just because of what the story is. So what unfolded, first of all, I got a copy of her father's military records, so he was himself in the military, and the mother confirmed that. So there's no question that he was in the military, had military contracts. There's no question that he had um, a lot of criminal contacts and was in legal trouble in the course of his life. Uh, He had um, a mistress that the family all knew who uh, lived across the street with him. And the mistress committed suicide. Um, It's agreed by the uh, mother and sisters that the father's psychiatrist came over to the house for dinner and they went to the psychiatrist's house for dinner, and they all are quite convinced that the father was having sex with the psychiatrist. So there's a lot of crazy, disturbed, incest-like behavior, and consorting with kind of criminal-type people, Um, alcoholism in the dad as well. He really died of complications of alcoholism. But what she recalled was not, not vague. I mean, there's a lot of missing pieces in it, but she recalls... being drugged, being put on an airplane, being flown to an unknown location, and uh, really it's kind of straight out of uh, the book The Candy Jones or the Manchurian Candidate movie. She was uh, at a military base or a military installation of some kind. There was doctors there. A whole bunch of procedures were done to her. It's quite detailed. And... And all this information kind of was held by these people in the uh, region of her mind that we called the over there that had that no human entry sign. I just kind of gradually made friends with those people and enticed them into talking to me, and they told that story. Were there huge gaps in Susan's life in terms of her memory, where huge blocks of time where she had no recollection? Um, not to quite the degree I've seen in many other people. Like, I've met people who have normal memory up to age nine, and then don't remember anything from nine to 13. Or their memory just begins in ninth grade at school or something like that. Hers was more um, uh, bits and pieces and blotches and gaps, except uh, one house where she lived from uh, in about age, uh, up to about age eight or nine, she remembers living there. She knows what the address is. 
Uh, she remembers going to school. She remembers the front yard, but remembers nothing from the inside of the house. No events, no visual picture of it whatsoever. And, of course, a lot of incest went on inside that house. What, in addition to the incest, were there other um, uh, methods of inducing trauma in, in Susan? Was there shock therapy? Was there, was there drug, uh, drug, uh, drugs involved? Yeah, when she was at the whatever that location was exactly, uh, some sort of military facility of some kind, um, there was a whole bunch of different techniques that she describes. Um, There's certainly drugs. There was um, playing uh, movies on the wall, and then she would be uh, made to move in time to the movie or uh, do specific things while the movie was playing. And she would kind of get absorbed into the movie as if the movie was reality. So there's a bunch of odd techniques and methods like that. And then she was basically forced to perform tricks, that is, have intercourse with guys who were brought in, adult guys who were brought in to have sex with her, and uh, forced to uh, charge those guys money, collect the money, turn it over to the doctors. And then the uh, doctors would kind of rig things so that the money did that up which made her very, very, very anxious and overwhelmed. So she has a, a part inside uh, that she refers to as the money changer part, who's overwhelmed with anxiety, always afraid that she's done something wrong, always afraid that the money doesn't add up, which has then resulted in a whole lot of money-related anxiety that she's had throughout her life. And she could never figure out what it was she was so anxious about or where it was coming from. And once we... You know, Setting aside the question of how much of the story is real, by going through this procedure of finding out all these details, talking to these parts, kind of orienting them to this is now 2011 now, but over the course of therapy it would be 97 or 2003 or whatever year, and getting them internal support from other parts, letting them tell their story, and several other techniques that we used, then the symptoms would settle down. So when you're working in the therapy, of course it's interesting whether the story is actually historically real or not, but the goal of the therapy is to reduce the symptoms and help the person live properly. In and other words, and, sorry, tremendous progress. In other words, uh, Dr. Ross, uh, sorry for the interruption, but what, what you're saying is regardless of whether the, the story is true, as the, as the therapist, as the, the clinician here, uh, right. It doesn't really matter as uh, as long as you are reducing the symptoms, the anxiety, the, whether the story actually happened the way that she claims it did is, is less important? Yeah, the, the job of the therapist, I mean, I don't know how many millions and billions of dollars would I need to go investigate all of this like, as a private investigator, and, and I wouldn't get anywhere because it's all classified anyway. That's not my role as a therapist. My role as a therapist isn't to believe... It isn't to not believe. It's to work with the person to reduce their symptoms and function better in life. And, you know, you don't have to, you don't, you, there's no way to know for sure that it is real. And there's no way to know that it isn't real most of the time. Well, except you, you, you spend that a lot. doesn't mean it's not important, like, socially or outside the therapy. It's incredibly important whether it happened. Sure, absolutely. But I mean, in terms of the treatment is what I'm saying. Right. But, but uh, right. having researched this extensively, I mean, you've written about, you know, the CIA doctors and, uh, and you've written 
uh, you know, uh, Project Bluebird and so forth. So obviously, right. um, when when you're hearing these cases from alleged victims, things that they say, um, you know, there must be they must resonate with you because it, it it sort of lines up with with the research that you've done. Right, and people very commonly doubt the reality of their own memories, and so we have a discussion about okay. So are they real or are they not real? How do you know? How are we going to decide? Why is it important? Is there any way to find out? And so what I say to people in therapy when they're describing these kind of military mind control experiment type memories is I can't, I don't know for absolute fact, I can't prove it in a court of law that it did happen. I certainly don't know that it didn't happen. But what I can say is it actually is objectively, realistically possible that it could have happened. Because there's a huge, huge, huge pile of documents about all kinds of crazy experiments that you would think weren't possible, except they're totally documented. Well, the fact that there is even a remote possibility... Uh, it's that, more than remote. ...that there is a distinct possibility that CIA, CIA doctors and, and uh, uh, the CIA itself and, and, and the military uh, is subjecting young people to these horrific experiments and abuse uh, is most disturbing, to say the very least. Dr. Colin A. Ross is with us. The book is Military Mind Control, A Story of Trauma and Recovery. When we come back, I want to find out what the military was hoping to accomplish by doing this to young Susan. What were they doing with these various personalities that they created? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, here on AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Coming up at midnight, uh, investigative journalist Janet Phelan will join us from Mexico to discover or to discuss, rather, biological weapon treaty violations by the United States. And then at 12.30, media scientist Nelson Thal, as we look back at the Swiss Air Flight 111 disaster, which occurred back in 1998, September the 2nd, and now new information would seem to vindicate something that Nelson said on the airwaves, that there was a bomb involved. And, of course, at the time it was dismissed as some sort of fire. Uh, right now, Dr. Colin Ross is with us, uh, talking about the uh, the horrific case of um, uh, one of his patients, Susan, we're calling her, uh, who was subjected to um, horrific sexual abuse uh, at the hands of not only her father, but uh, others that were brought in uh, and into the house, and uh, whether or not this was a case of military mind control. Now, what was the... Can you shed any light on what the purpose was? Was was Susan being used as a... I mean, what were they doing with these compartmentalized parts of her brain, these multiple personalities that they were creating? What were they hoping, hoping to accomplish? 
Uh, well, there's what she describes, and then there's what's in the documents and the literature. So just in general, it's not a matter of my opinion or speculation or theory. One of the main contractors on Manchurian candidate programs, which is creating artificial multiple personality for the military, was a guy named G.H. Esterbrooks, who's actually a Canadian by birth, spent his uh, professional career at uh, Colgate University in upstate New York. And he describes uh, contracting to the War Department during the Second World War. And uh, I've got a lot of documents backing all this up. This is not just him talking. Uh, and he says it's creating the super spy. So the, the basic purpose of it is very clear. You uh, in, create a multiple personality. You have these amnesia barriers. Behind the amnesia barriers is the artificial person. And you have uh, code words or access cues of some kind, which are described in uh, CIA documents in a lot of detail. So the access can be, or the, the trigger cue can either be a word or phrase, can be a hand signal, can be a tone over the phone. All this is described in detail in the CIA documents. And then uh, what you do is, if you have a mission, you bring the regular person in, uh, and then you say the code, or you, you do the hand signal, or whatever it might be. Out comes the artificially created personality, which is the Manchurian candidate. And that artificial personality is given the mission assignment, and the person's flipped back to their normal self. They have no knowledge of the mission whatsoever. And so it's the other personality or identity state that carries out the mission. And the purpose, uh, one question is just why bother with that? But the main purpose, as far as I can figure out, is if the person's captured, uh, they're really resistant to interrogation because they the person out front has no knowledge of the mission whatsoever. And so you can interrogate them forever. They just don't know. So it's really all about uh, you know, security of information, hiding it behind these amnesia barriers. It's not the typical idea of get them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. Because it's just normal um, military and spy missions. You're either infiltrating somewhere, you're retrieving documents, uh, you're penetrating some cell, or you're carrying out an assassination or career assignment. And you can just get regular personnel to do that. Exactly. So what they do isn't that out of the ordinary. It's all about the amnesia, I think. But that's not to suggest that, that Susan was, you know, a a willing participant in this. No, she was just a child. Right. So, so what were they, what was Susan, what were they getting Susan to do? Was she a, 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 a mule carrying, uh, you know, secret information to other spies? Was she being, was she being used she, to blackmail politicians? She kicked out of the program when she was 10 because uh, basically some of her parts were belled and uh, she was being trained uh, up to the point that she got kicked out. She was being trained to be kind of a child prostitute and then, I suppose, an adult prostitute down the road who would go in and uh, you know, have sex with whoever the target was and try and get information out of them. And the way she would... And she had practice sessions where this was done uh, with these military people observing all as a setup and a training exercise. And so uh, she had parts who would this is a 8 or 10-year-old child, would have sex with an adult guy, uh, would bring him to the point of orgasm, 
and then keep him pre-orgasmic. And when she was just coming up to orgasm, uh, kind of go in and uh, interrogate him and try and get information out of him. And one of the things that she would do would be to check to see if there was programming, mind control programming in the target person. So that's what she was being trained for. If she got Which all sounds like complete ridiculous science fiction, but these kind of things or things similar to this are described in great detail in documents. And, uh, I mean, if, if she got kicked out of the program, why was she... If they're, if they're willing to do, subject a young child to sexual abuse, why would they allow her to live once she's kicked out of the program? Uh, well, I don't know the answers to all these questions, but what she describes they did was um, they gave her massive amounts of electric shock, and they thought they, they had kind of wiped out her memory of the program or the involvement in the program, and uh, given her such a horrendous punishment that even if she remembered a bit, she would never talk. And they, they made her believe that they would monitor her indefinitely, and if she talked, you know, something serious would happen. Uh, why they didn't kill her, I don't know. Why was she chosen to begin with? How do they, how do they recruit? Uh, it, as far as, it, of course, we don't know all of that because that would have been, you know, her dad who did that behind the scenes. But as far as it can make out, uh, her dad, first of all, was in the military, was connected to these kind of people, was an active pedophile himself, and he most likely, best guess, would be that he established some contact with somebody who knew somebody, which got him referred to the program, and he thought he could either make some money, be part of this cool in-club, score points, it might lead to some other business deal. I don't know what. So basically, he brought his daughter in as a as a primed person who already had a lot of abuse and had uh, active dissociation and was somebody that could be worked on. And so then the the military would have access to this girl with no concern that parents would be asking questions or raising suspicions or anything. So when you're looking for a... Um for clues as to whether some individual, uh, a mass uh, shooter, for example, Virginia Tech, etc., are you looking mm-hmm. for military background, history of sexual abuse, uh, as as evidence that they might be a Manchurian candidate? Yeah, if I was working for some branch of the government or other, and I was tasked with looking into the Virginia Tech shooting or any other shooting like that, and come up with an opinion as to what's going on here. The things that I would consider, that I would look into, would be, um, so this would be school shooters, mass shooters, uh, the Fort Hood shooter, anybody like this, Virginia Tech. Uh, One option is, it really is just kind of a lone nut model. There's The person's mentally unbalanced. You have to look into their personal story. Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's abuse, maybe it's whatever. But it's just an unbalanced person who's gone on a crime rampage. That's one option. Next option I would look at in every case would be this could be a toxic reaction to antidepressant medications. So there's a, in the United States, the FDA has what's called a black box warning, 
which the drug companies are legally forced to put a warning. And this warning is based on all the drug research that was done and submitted to the FDA, saying that antidepressants increase the risk of uh, thinking suicidal thoughts or acting out or attempting suicide, also increase the risk of homicide, agitated, delirious behavior. So another one I'd always want to look at is, does this fit with toxic reaction to medication? And then the other possibility I would want to know is, is this an operation? Is somebody you know, controlling and handling this person? Is this non-random? Is it organized? And then within that category, I want to know, is the shooter mind-controlled or not? And those are the basic scenarios that I would look at every time. And sometimes one would apply and sometimes another. And, and when you look at the uh, the Virginia Tech shooter or, let's say, the gunman that targeted uh, Representative Gabriel Giffords in, in Tucson um, uh, earlier this year, I mean, are you seeing those that consistent pattern, military, sex abuse? Um, yes, no lack of information is kind of the overall answer. Uh, Jared Lohner, or Lofner, however you pronounce his name, um, I know everybody's saying that he has schizophrenia and he's severely mentally ill. And that's kind of all I know about him. I haven't looked into that case in more detail. But uh, the Virginia Tech shooter, I looked into that. So just what's in the public domain, uh, what's in the newscast, and so on. And um, I'd say there's a reasonable suspicion that he was mind-controlled by somebody, but not necessarily, but a reasonable suspicion. And the reason I say that is uh, a couple of the uh, plays that he wrote uh, of which I have the transcripts, so you can get them on the Internet, describe in great detail uh, a person sort of like him, who's the protagonist, who has a sexual abuse history, um, and who's very angry um, as a result, and who's identified with all the ch- child victims in the world, and who wants to get revenge on adults. So that's not proof, but that certainly raises the question of why would somebody be writing that if it wasn't semi-autobiographical at best. Then there's um, a couple of things that are interesting. He uh, was a very, very, very quiet guy. Like, people who were in his dorm hardly heard him say more than a couple of words in a whole semester. And when he, the videotape that he made, he's very talkative, very communicative, and uh, behaving in an extremely different fashion from how he had all term. So that's, again, doesn't prove anything, but that's kind of suspicious for a dissociative switch from one identity to another. One of his uh, roommates in college, uh, interviewed by the mainstream media, described he's talking to Cho on the phone, and uh, Cho's saying this, that, and the other, and being more talkative than usual. Uh, But the roommate's only a short distance away in another part of the dorm, and he walks over and... Uh, Cho's only just hung up the phone, and Cho completely denies ever having had the conversation. So that's a little bit suspicious. Mm. And then uh, he, uh, uh, what was the other thing? Oh, yeah, he has this um, name, Axe Ismael. So he had this pseudonym, uh, which could just be a pseudonym, and Axe Ismael is supposedly the character that carried out the shooting. And there's, it's a little murky exactly what that comes from, but it could be some sort of uh, 
you know, Muslim Quran-based kind of reference. So there's a little hint of some sort of possibility of you know, Islamic extremism in the background there. And uh, there might be one or two other details I forget just now. But there's yeah. kind of an, enough circumstantial, indirect hints that he was uh, dissociative. I want to bring it back to, to Susan, uh, the case, the subject okay. of military mind control, a story of trauma and recovery. What, what ultimately what happened to her? Did she have a full recovery? Uh, she's functioning very well as a professional. She doesn't really have any active, diagnosable mental disorder of any kind. She still has you know, some problems and conflicts that she's in. Uh, she's married with two kids. Uh, good marriage. I met with the husband multiple, multiple times. And she doesn't have nightmares. She doesn't have flashbacks. You know, she doesn't have a substance abuse problem. She doesn't self-mutilate or anything like that. So she's made a, a really amazing symptom recovery and huge improvement in overall function. And She's really a, an example of a really amazing recovery. I mean, uh, Still a little bit more to do, but amazing progress. So what is she, I mean, now that she's, with your help and others, been able to piece what happened to her all together, I mean, does she not want, does, does she want to pursue this in the, in the criminal courts, or uh, is she just willing to, 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 you know, to leave that in the past, or what does she do with this information, that she was the victim of a a military mind control experiment. She would love to have uh, some sort of public validation of it, but the problem is, and this is a problem for everybody I've ever met. There's, I've never met somebody. Uh, basically, there's one exception. I've met a woman who's in a chapter in my book named Linda McDonald, who was, uh, and I have a copy of her medical record from the Allen Memorial Institute in. Uh, Montreal, where she was experimented on by Ewan Cameron. Uh, Ewan Cameron was funded by um, Department of Health and Welfare in Canada and by the CIA. And so she's a documented, you know, say, a mind control victim. This is where was compensated this is, for $10,000 by the uh, $100,000 by the Canadian government. And this is where women who may have been suffering from things like postpartum depression uh, were. Um, given massive doses of LSD and had their memories virtually wiped clean. Right. She literally had her memory wiped clean with, uh, from, I think it was, 60, it was 63 or 65, I forget the exact year, but she went into the Allen Memorial Institute, which was part of McGill, in um, May, and from May to September, she had uh, 103 or 107, right in around there, um, ECT treatments, electric shock treatments, for each of those treatments, instead of the button being pushed once on the machine, it was pushed six times. So she had the equivalent of literally uh, 600-plus normal ECT treatments in a period of a few months. Mm. And it completely wiped out all of her memory. At her worst, she couldn't, she didn't know where she was, who she was, what year it was, she didn't know she was married. She couldn't recognize her husband and children. Uh, and she gradually had to relearn all of that. But when I interviewed her in the 90s in Vancouver, she still had complete amnesia from birth up to the time she entered McGill. And that was, uh, at the point she was there, the funding was from Health and Welfare Canada, but previously it had been the CIA. 
And he was literally contracting with the CIA to figure out how they could wipe out memories. For those, you know, who think that this is fantasy or, or, or mere conspiracy theory, I mean, as you say, there have been uh, court settlements. People have been awarded damages, and the case right. has been made that this was, in fact, going on, that the CIA uh, was involved, Health and Welfare yeah, it, it, Canada. It's just like, was the American military ever in, in Afghanistan in the last 10 years? It's, not a, it's just a fact. It's completely proven. It's not a conspiracy theory. Obviously, uh, these you know these military mind control victims are not all being turned into assassins. Some of them are uh, a part of some sort of a sex ring used for blackmail or to extract information right. from others. Um, I, I I believe it was a, a former FBI agent, uh, Gunderson, um, mm-hmm. who was involved in a well-known. I've never met him. I've talked to him on the phone, but never met him. Well, there was this cele- not celebrated, this nefarious uh, a, a child abduction ring that took place um, around Omaha, Nebraska, I believe. It was called the Franklin mm-hmm. case, where a number of I mean, people, young people, were being ab- abducted uh, off the streets. I mean, you would see them, their face on a milk carton, and assume that they were. The victim of some, you know, lone um, uh, a pedophile, but in fact, Gunderson was making the case that this was organized. That these kids would end up in Washington, you know, in a, in a hotel room uh, with some politician that the other side wanted to blackmail. I mean, wh- right. do you think that has any validity? Is that going on? Well, what do we know for a fact? We know for a fact that human trafficking, the, the basic like. Official estimates are in the United States, I don't know the figures for Canada, but in the United States, at any given time, there's in between 80,000 and 120,000 trafficked individuals in the country. So now that includes trafficking for labor and sweatshops, but a huge chunk of it is trafficking for the sex trade, and a bunch of it involves underage children. So that's just a fact, and that's the official estimates of people who work on this as a career in law enforcement. So there's no question that the child pornography industry is a multi-multi-billion dollar industry. Um, So these things are all real and true. And, I mean, it's not just uh, some pleasant, happy little videos with Sesame Street characters. We're talking really bizarre, violent uh, kind of pornography involving children. But so there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of this stuff. Why would none of these children be getting delivered to high-ranking people in all different walks of life? But the, have to be. but the idea that it's being orchestrated, that these child abduction rings are organized uh, by members of the higher, highest echelons of society. I mean, that even you know the, the CIA or the military might be involved. I mean, that's pretty hard to comprehend. Yeah, until you just start thinking about it. You've got a literally a multi-multi-billion dollar industry of child pornography and child prostitution, and there's no powerful rich people running it, and it's impossible. No, I suppose. There's no dirty politicians on the take. It's impossible. Um, well, even further than that, not, not necessarily, well, obviously dirty politicians, but the, the idea that this is, is not just for profit, that this is part of the, uh, you know, intelligence, uh, sp- I guess, spycraft. 
You know that this right. is this is how they do business. That the people that are well, not counting the sexual part of it, the the Manchurian candidate part of it, the mind control part of it, is absolutely clearly, explicitly described in CIA documents in great detail. So there's no doubt that uh, this Manchurian candidate kind of stuff was done, and the people involved in it describe it being operational. There's How many? no doubt about that. That's not conspiracy theory. The only part that's quotes conspiracy theory is the sexual slavery aspect of it. All the other elements are just objectively proven. It's 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 most disturbing, and um, uh, I thank you for your time. And the the book again is Military Mind Control: A Story of Trauma and Recovery. And uh, um, there is a silver lining here, as you say. Susan has gone on to uh, to lead a relatively normal life, as 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 much as that is possible under the circumstances. Uh, what are you working on next, uh, Colin? Actually, I'm kind of on a different track right now. I'm making myself into an expert on vitamin D. So I'm, I'm looking into vitamin D and hormones. That's one of my projects. And then I've got a, a, one patent and a patent pending for energy fields uh, development. So those are kind of two different directions I'm going right at the moment. All right. Well, we'll stay in touch, and um, best okay. of luck with both of those projects. Dr. Colin Ross, Military Mind Control, A Story of Trauma and Recovery. Thanks, Colin. Okay, thanks. When we come right. back, investigative journalist Janet Phelan joins us live from Mexico to discuss the United States and possible violations of the Bioweapons Treaty. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Stay with us. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Just a reminder, Season 2 of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on television debuts Wednesday, September the 28th, 11 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV across Canada. One hour, the first half hour is a brand new episode from Season 2. The second half hour is a repeat from Season 1. Again, September the 28th, and that's every weeknight uh, until, the, uh, until the run of the, sh- uh, of the series, uh, which is 18 episodes. And uh, the conspiracyshow.com website um, is being refurbished, rebuilt, and uh, we're going to go live with that in just a few days. So 
theconspiracyshow.com, uh, and you'll be able to actually link to richardserrett.com from that website as well. Eventually, the radio and the TV will all be uh, under one banner, theconspiracyshow.com. But um, uh, keep checking. In a couple of days, the um, the new website, and uh, I'm, I'm quite pleased with it. I think it's a good one, and that'll be uh, online and uh you can get all your information uh, for the radio show and the TV show right there. Uh, and the researcher for the Conspiracy Show television program, Nelson Thaw, will be in studio in just about a half an hour to talk about the Swiss Air Flight 111 and what really happened. He called it back in 1998 when he said it was a bomb, folks. Well, now a former RCMP officer seems to be uh, confirming that, although at the time they blamed a fire. All right, our next guest is a, uh, an investigative journalist whose articles have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the San Bernardino County Sentinel, the Santa Monica Daily Press, the Long Beach Press-Telegram, We Magazine, other regional and national publications. Uh, in the past, she's been on this program uh, addressing the heated subject of adult conservatorship, revealing shocking information about the relationships between courts and shady financial consultants. Uh, she also covers issues relating to international nuclear weapon treaties, and uh, her latest uh, dispatch, which has been published in Active Post, relates to concerns about U.S. bioweapons violations. Janet Phelan joins us live on the line from Mexico. Hello, Janet. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Richard. I, I don't think we have the best connection in the world, but I hope it works on your end. Uh, well, we'll um, we'll do the best we can. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight from Mexico. Now, you're reporting that the Center for Disease Control, uh, they're declining to confirm or deny allegations that the United States government is stockpiling biological and or chemical weapons at Sierra Army Depot, which is a military base in Northern California. Now, my question uh, would be, why would it be news that the United States government might be stockpiling biological uh, and or chemical weapons? I mean, isn't that what they do? Um, it's illegal. The United States signed on to the Biological Weapons Convention, back, which is an international treaty, back in the early 70s. And this uh, treaty uh, governs the development and stockpiling uh, prohibits the development and stockpiling of these weapons. So if the United States is indeed doing this, they are in violation of international law. Well, what... And um, there are a number of ind indicators that the United States is rather flagrantly violating this treaty. Now, uh, these... Um... Uh, they call them BSL-4s. These are the, the level four labs. We, we're all familiar with Plum Island, and they, they supposedly handle the most dangerous germs known to man, e Ebola and, and, uh, and, and other uh, uh, viruses. Uh, I mean, what are they doing with Ebola and these other things if they're not trying to figure out how to weaponize them? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm cynical. I just sort of always took it for granted that that's what they were doing. I guess now what you're saying we have definitive proof. Um, I'm saying we have strong indicators that they are developing biological weapons in, in absolute defiance of this treaty. Um, the, one of the issues, um, I'd like to kind of run through uh, the indicators. Um, uh, the first indicator was a section that was sort of sneaked into the U.S. Patriot Act, which is Section 817, the expansion of the Biological Weapons 
statute, which was passed after the attacks of September 11th. And in uh, this Section 817, they have written in a caveat, um, which basically gives the United States of America a blank check to violate the BWC. Now, that is a paper violation. And um, this has, you know, this is something that has been written into law now. The question is, why did the U.S. government give itself a blank check? And are there other indicators that they're developing biological weapons in violation of this treaty? And then, of course, one would want to know why. Tell me about Ron Davenport, the uh, the biomedical engineer who worked at the uh, at the Sierra Army Depot, where these violations are supposedly, or these these stock the stockpiling of these biological and chemical weapons are, is supposedly taking place. Well, Ron, Ron Davenport was useful in giving me a bit of the uh, topography of Sierra Army Depot, because apparently uh, a large part of the base is underground. Now, um, back during the period of time when Ron Davenport was um, in the military and working there, uh, there, they were storing nuclear weapons at Sierra Army Depot. Um, My more recent reporter, um, person reporting back as to what's going on at Sierra Army Depot, has stated that the nukes have been dismantled and that they are now storing large vats of liquid. So the question would be, um, what kinds of substances are in those large vats of liquid. Um, I, did, I did interview extensively a couple of parties at the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and when I got to the issue of Sierra Army Depot, they would simply discontinue the interview. They would not talk about it any further. There are a number of military bases which appear to be stockpiling uh, either biological or chemical weapons at this point in time. And the article that you um, are referencing on activist posts gives a at least a partial list of those uh, bases, and this is for the Army's own records. Now you go, um, you go to there the... There are some other issues um, having to do with, um, with the perception that, that the United States government is, is developing these weapons. Um, one is the existence of these BSL-4s, which are the four deal with the most dangerous germs. And there are apparently now uh, BSL-4s on at least two military bases um, at, at Aberdeen Proving Ground and then also Segway uh, in Utah. So the question would be, um, since defensive research uh, which is all that the U.S. will cop to being in, in, engaged in. That has to do with developing vaccines and ways to protect oneself from uh, bad bugs. So one would have to ask why military bases would have BSL-4s on them. Um, once again, the military denies and the CDC deny that Aberdeen and Dugway have BSL-4s. The reason that um, I came to this conclusion is that I located the architectural firms who uh, claim that they built the SL4s on these two bases. And um, you went to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, for comment because they're the ones that are responsible for registering these labs. Yes. Um, they, they need to keep track. For their own mandate, they need to keep track 
of the BSL-4s um, of any lab that deals with um, substances on this all right, we're losing you there, Janet. Listen, uh, I don't know if you can hear me, Janet, but um, uh, what I'm going to do, uh, we're going to take a break, and um, you just sort of uh, cut out there for a moment. We'll um, we'll take a time out, and I'll have uh, Griffin call you back and reconnect, and maybe that'll uh, help. Uh, Janet Phelan is uh, with us. Her latest uh, dispatch published in the Activist Post. Uh, raising concerns about possible U.S. bioweapons violations. In fact, the question is, what is in those large vats of liquid at the Sierra Army Depot and uh, elsewhere, other BSLs around the country, Plum Island, etc.? Is it uh, Ebola, smallpox, some weaponized virus that we have no antidote for? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM740. All right, we've uh, reconnected with Janet Phelan, investigative uh, journalist in Mexico. Janet, can you hear me? Um, yes, I can. Can you hear me all right? I can. All right, so back to the um, these BSL-4s. Um, you were in contact with the uh, architectural firm, that, uh, and they claim that they've been building these BSLs on various uh, bases. Now, my understanding is that they, they, they sometimes... Uh, will hide these BSL-4s even on university campuses. Is there any truth to that? Um, yes, there are a number of university campuses that have BSL-4s. Um, now, if you speak to the CDC, if you speak to the CDC about this, um, they've got a very different story. They they maintain there are six BSL-4s in the United States of America, but if you do. Uh, if you do your own independent research, and I'm talking about going to, um, to university websites, to military websites, et cetera, you'll come up with quite a different story. The Federation for American Scientists um, have, have found 11 BSL-4s. Um, I believe it was 11. No, they found 13. Um, the University of North Carolina uh, was a 15. And when I factored in those um, BSL-4s on military bases, I found a total of, of 17 or 18. So the, the um, Center for Disease Control has sort of hunkered down and is giving us misinformation about not only the number of level fours, but um, they've given out extravagantly bad information about the number of level three. Now, you point out that, that uh, the U.S. Congress allocates about a billion dollars a year to fund biological defense research. Why shouldn't we believe that 
that that's what these BSL-4s are up to, that they are basically engaged in biological defense research. Well, there, there are a number of indicators otherwise. And, um, you know, one of these indicators uh, is um, the reports of what is being stored at Sierra Army Depot. Um, other indicators are also uh, fairly uh, uh, strong. Uh, one of them is, um, oh my goodness, the United States of America suffered already a bioweapons attack um, in the week following September 11th when that, that anthrax mailing happened. Now that has been largely admitted to be weaponized anthrax that was cooked up in a government lab. Uh, Fort Detrick, I believe, was it not? Uh, yes, Fort Detrick. And um, the, the U.S. government um, did go ahead, and uh, the FBI uh, apparently did, a, did some investigation and, and determined that Dr. Bruce Ivins, um, was, who was a scientist working at Fort Detrick, was responsible for this. Um, unfortunately, uh, okay, and I think we're losing Janet again. Can you hear me, Janet? The phone line uh, to Mexico is a little tenuous at best. The National Academy issued their report just a couple of months ago saying they did not support the FBI's methodology in stating that Ivan's was uh, the anthrax mailer. And there are some peculiarities concerning uh, Bruce Ivins' death. I don't know if we have the time to go into all of that today, but um, Bruce Ivins, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the story was that he attempted suicide by Tylenol. He did. Be, he was found alive. He was taken to the hospital. He began to rally, and he was going to get a liver transplant. And somebody made the decision to pull pull him off of life support. So um, I have great concerns as to who actually um, did manufacture that anthrax, and I, I, I am not convinced it was through Ivan's. And there are other indicators as well. Um, the Sunshine Project has come out with a report, a scathing report, as to the lack of oversight on these BSL-4s. They have found uh, over and over again where the oversight committees that are supposed to watch what kinds of research are going on never meet. The oversight committees never meet. Furthermore, um, they have found where unauthorized research has gone on in these labs, so nobody is watching the store. Now, the U.S. gave itself a blank check in Section 817 of the U.S. Patriot Act to go ahead and violate the Biological Weapons Convention, and we have all these issues um, going on where um, where it, it, it begins to become uh, questionable as to what in the world is going on in these laboratories. Explain to me again, uh, Janet, uh, the, um, the, the statute uh, within the U.S. Patriot Act that gives, as you say, the U.S. government a blank check uh, to develop biological weapons. What, what is the ostensible purpose for that 
inclusion in the U.S. Patriot Act. I'm sorry, would you, would you repeat that question, the last part of the question? Please. What, what, what is the, the rationale for including that statute in the U.S. Patriot Act, which circumvents the Biological Weapons Treaty? What would be, well, I'm not sure I quite understand the question, but, but um, basically the 817 um, lists, um, uh, you know, makes it a criminal act to, uh, to transport and possess certain sorts of biological weapons. And, and the language largely mirrors the BWC, that bi- International Bioweapons Treaty. At the very end, there is a caveat which states that the prohibitions contained in this section shall not apply to any duly authorized United States governmental activity. So one has to ask why the United States chose to, to exempt themselves from this treaty, right at the point where Congress starts pouring in millions of dollars, billions of dollars, into some level of biological research that may may include weaponized um, uh, bioagents. Well, the big question, uh, Janet, is if, in fact, uh, weapons-grade anthrax from a government lab was used against U.S. citizens in the anthrax attacks. What other research is going on now, and and what other you know what else can we look for down the line? Um, I'm sorry, we must have a bad connection. That could you restate that, please? All right. Yes. If the if it's true that the that weapons grade anthrax from a government lab was used against U.S. citizens, then we have to ask ourselves what's next. Yes, we do have to ask ourselves what's next, and we. And my my feeling about this is that this needs to be brought to the attention of the uh, people in Geneva, Switzerland, who host the BWC. Now, there's some um, unfortunate aspects to this international treaty because it has no teeth. Unlike the Chemical Weapons Convention, which has weapons inspectors and, and penalties applied, there is no inspection capability attached to the BWC, and there is no uh, there is no procedure for applying penalties. So they have. So what we have is a toothless international treaty. However, the, the BWC does meet every five years. They meet in Geneva, Switzerland. They will be meeting this December. I have applied to be credentialed to attend because. I believe that the issue surrounding the behavior by the United States of America has reached a sufficient uh, a standard of alarm where um, folks in Geneva need to be advised as to this. All right, what so that's a... about it with no weapons inspectors. I don't know, but the international community needs to be advised um, that starting with the U.S. Patriot Act and that brazen uh, legal violation, there appears to be more and more evidence that the United States of America is developing biological weapons. All right, Janet, we're going to have to leave it there because of the phone quality. We're hearing some other sort of conversations in Spanish bleeding through on your phone, Uh, but uh, we thank you for the information, and we trust that you'll be all over the story come December in Geneva, and we look forward to uh, further communications from you regarding this important issue. Thank you very much, Richard. All right. Janet Phelan, investigative journalist, uh, covering the uh, possible 
uh, bioweapons violations by the U.S. All right, we'll take a timeout, uh, Griffin, on the other side. We'll come back with media scientist Nelson Thal talking about an incident uh, that happened back in September 2nd, 1998, a, uh, a horrific uh, uh, loss of life. Swiss Air Flight 111 departed from JFK. They called it the UN Shuttle because it was a popular airline for, uh, for diplomats and uh, 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 UN officials. Of course, it crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off of uh, uh, the coast of Halifax, killing about 229 individuals. They blamed fire. Back in 98, on another radio station, Nelson Thal came on and said it wasn't fire. He had it on good authority. It was a bomb. And then, most recently, a former RCMP um, officer has come uh, before the media and said he has also information that it may have been a bomb. We'll delve into that when The Conspiracy Show continues on the other side, here on AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740, or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Swiss Air Flight 111 was a Swiss Air McDonnell Douglas on a scheduled airline flight from JFK in New York City uh, to an airport in Geneva, Switzerland, and um, it um, crashed in the Atlantic Ocean, southwest of Halifax International Airport, again, September 2nd, 1998, and the uh, the crash site was about eight kilometers from shore, roughly equidistant from the tiny fishing and tourist communities of Peggy's Cove and Bayswater. All 229 people on board died. The highest ever death toll of any aviation accident involving McDonnell Douglas MD-11. And uh, the resulting in, uh, investigation by the Transportation Safety Board of Canada took over four years and a cost of $57 million. Now, keep in mind, that's, that's uh, about f- roughly, f- I would say, four times during the rough figuring, four times what they spent on the 9-11 Commission. Uh, $57 million uh, uh, investigating the crash. And the um, TSB concluded that the flammable material used in the aircraft's structure allowed a fire to spread beyond the control of the crew, resulting in the loss of control and crash of the aircraft. Then, about five days ago, CBC News reported that an ex-RCMP officer has evidence to show the crash may not have been an accident. Well, I've got news for you. About 13 years ago, my next guest said the very same thing on another radio station that I was working for. Nelson Thal, media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, JFK assassination researcher. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, Richard? I'm well. I mean, we don't like to use, when, 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 whenever we're talking about a tragedy, we, we, never, we don't like to use words like vindication, and we don't certainly want to slap each other on the back, but you called this 13 years ago. You said 
that this was a bomb aboard Swiss Flight 111. Now, take me back to 1998. I, I booked you on another radio show when you came to me with this information. Of course, what we call a blowtorch radio station. We yes. can't give the name, though. All right. Yeah. But, of course, all the media reports, and then later the, the actual findings of the TSB were saying it wasn't a bomb, it was flammable material. What was the information you had if you can take me back at that time, why did you know ahead of everyone else that it was a bomb on Swiss Flight 111? Well, um, it wasn't really that difficult uh, because what was happening at the time was a good friend of the, of ours and uh, um, a well-known man by the name of Pierre Salinger, press secretary for the president, was also a reporter for ABC News. And we were in touch with uh, Salinger, and he was a tremendous uh, source of information because, of course, he was John F. Kennedy, the president's press secretary. Yes. And he was the one who gave us the information. So it came to us from ABC News' Pierre Salinger. And so we, you, I came, called you up, and I said, we've got to go with this. I mean— So Salinger told you. And you and I had Salinger on that station. That's right. And because, I came to I went to to him and I asked him if he would come on and he agreed to and he came on and he talked about about it on the on air you recall with right. myself and John and it, it's interesting that that Salinger was also the one that was trying to convince the world that TWA eight hundred that horrific uh, plane crash JFK again uh, uh, falling into the Atlantic Ocean after flying over Brooklyn uh, that that too was that was a missile and not what we were told that, that it was some you know um, and P and Salinger went with that story and ABC News scrubbed it and that's of course when he he was exiled to France realized, and, and uh, exiled to France and he realized that what, we've all realized that free speech has glass ceilings. And he never realized it before, I don't think. Now, his his contacts with for for his sources, Salinger sources for the TWA 800, as I recall, right. were French Secret Service or French Secret Police. Well, first of all, when you're the press secretary of the United States, you're in touch with all intelligence agencies. Right. Everybody. Right. Do you remember what his sources were for the uh, Swiss Air 111? Well, he had multiple sources, and 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 he he. Um, he kept his sources mostly to himself to protect his sources, but he was such a high, uh, highly regarded person by top levels in the Defense Department and in, in all different parts of the government that um, he, he could protect his sources. And that's why he was, he was a, a major figure in ABC News at the time. But when he said this, as I say, the, yeah. they they ridiculed him, yes. shunned him. As people started to, yeah. to accuse him of, of suffering from dementia. His own company assaulted him exactly, and he flee, he went to France. But he stood by that story right to the end. Absolutely, and he came to Montreal and did many interviews about it. And we we did. In, I was in on an interview with him in his hotel room in in the Ritz Carlton in Montreal, and he went through it in detail. And he had documents too. He had military documents, so he had whistleblowers within the intelligence agencies, officers who had desk jobs who knew about this, feeding him real documents. But he wasn't going to release that to us, and we didn't ask him to. Nelson, know, we went with the story. Nelson Thal, media scientist, uh, in studio with me as we discuss a Swiss Air Flight One Eleven, two hundred and twenty-nine dead. Uh, September 2nd, 1998, and uh, in the news again, uh, because not only have we just passed the anniversary, uh, but also now an ex-RCMP officer saying he has information, uh, evidence that a the crash may not have been an accident, meaning a bomb. Uh, 
Now, the, the Swiss Air Flight 111, it was known as the UN shuttle because it was very popular with the United Nations officials. Uh, the flight often carried business executives, scientists, researchers. Did Salinger have any, uh, did he talk to you about motive? Like, was there someone on that plane that was the target? Yeah, uh, he, 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 he not only talked about it with us, he, he reported it at the time. And I, I think we should say, Richard, right off the bat, I want to remind everybody, we stand on the shoulders of the giants of science, the giants here like McLuhan, who talked about the arts and sciences being in the pockets of the secret societies, and President Kennedy, who who talked about it. And they can go to, no plug intended, but go to Blue Men Steel, S-T-E-E-L-E dot com, or go to richardsurrett.com, and on the bottom left, there's the, the Bloom and Steel logo, and click on it and go to the articles, and you can listen to that speech by Kennedy, in which he... Yeah, we play it here on the show as well, all yeah, the time. So yeah, so we stand on the shoulders of these people, and when you do, a guy like Salinger comes along, who's the former President Kennedy's press secretary, you stand on, on his shoulders and take what he's reporting, and it's not that I've come up or, with it, it's just that um, no one else wanted to talk to him about it. To like, you know, with Jim Garrison uh, as well, we include in that Garrison and Kennedy and McLuhan and Garrison's book, A Heritage of Stone. And um, he's the district attorney and he claimed uh, he's the only one who brought a charge against uh, in the murder of Kennedy. The okay. still unsolved. But let's go back yeah. to, to Flight 111. We had you had a, no, a number of notable individuals who died in the accident. Sure. You had the former head of the who uh, of the World Health Organization's AIDS program. Uh, Jonathan Mann, his yeah. wife. Uh, you had um, uh, you had a special. Uh, you had a um, uh, uh, an individual who was on a special mission for UN Secretary General Kofi Annan to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. You had uh, uh, Joseph Lamada, son of former boxing world champion uh, Jake Lamada. Yeah. You had uh, Mahmoud Diba, the cousin of former Iranian Queen Farah Diba. You had uh, a member of the the, the Saudi royal family. Um, a New York Times executive. Uh, uh, who else? You had some 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 doctors, some genetic genetics experts, uh, former tennis player. Uh, who was the target? Why did they bring that plane down if it was a bomb? Basically, what was reported at the time, and it stood the test of time. Basically, is that um, there always was on this plane. Uh, those sorts of people. But the one sort of person that there wasn't regularly on this sort of plane who was to get on this plane uh, was Richard Tomlinson. MI6. And at the time, Salinger and others, Skolnick, uh, uh, Sherman Skolnick as well as uh, uh, Salinger and others reported that... Um, Tomlinson was an MI6 rogue agent who was going to turning whistleblower, and he was booked in the computer to be on that flight, and he got a phone call at the gate, and that's been confirmed over the years, and the phone call, he was told, don't get on that plane, and that plane blew up. And you know who Richard Tomlinson, MI6, and guess what? Connected to the whole lady... Diana, Princess Diana. Yes, yeah, Tomlinson was the one that blew the whistle and saying there were it was military a, uh, lasers. Da 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 da. Right, da, right. Yeah. 
So, uh, and, and this is only a couple days. At the time, days, that's the story only... we went with 13 years ago, and nothing's changed it ever since. And obviously, you know, whistleblowers in the RCMP and other were, are know about it and 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 don't want the the truth surfaces eventually, doesn't it, Richard? Well, we'll we'll see. I mean, we have a, this ex RCMP officer who now is is saying that um, it, it it was a bomb. Uh, what are you hearing about his information? What is he saying? He's, oh, he's saying it's not an accident, but what is he saying? Let's remember the environment upon which this happened. It happened in the midst of Oklahoma City, and and Ron Brown's plane was sabotaged. Former and Commerce sure, Secretary. And yeah. Skolnick first reported, uh, he wrote it, you can go to skolnicksreport.com and read the history of airplane sabotage. He listed, so, there's so many planes that they've tried. John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane was at a barometric bomb. I mean, this is, you've got to keep this Swiss Air in context with all the other airplane sabotage that has been going on. Uh, let's grab a call here and uh, say hello to Fred in Whitby. Hello, Fred. Good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi. How are you doing? Uh, you said uh, flammable material. An incinerary bomb is made up of flammable material, isn't no, it? No, indeed it is. But I mean, I'm, I'm, the the TSB basically were saying that the construction of the plane was flammable material. So they they weren't they ruled out a bomb. There was a fire, they said, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, an incendiary device. But now we're we're hearing from this XRCMP officer that, it, that it, it wasn't an accident, it may have been a bomb, and of course that echoes what Nelson and Pierre Salinger were reporting 13 years ago. Anything else, Fred? No, that's fine. I just wanted to point that out. No, that's true. <laughs> it's, uh, and thank you for pointing, the, pointing that out. Very good. Thank uh, you. All right. So the, the, um, the history of uh, sabotage planes, as you point out, uh, is a long a sad one. Yep. Yep. I mean, but course, but surely, I mean, there are there are. I mean, Nelson. I, whenever whenever a plane goes down, you're obviously you're, you're often the first person I hear from, and is saying you know sabotage, sabotage. But there are occasionally, you have to admit, actual. I mean, the odds are there's going to be actual air disasters that are caused by just simple mechanical failure, bad weather. You're not suggesting that that the preponderance of air disasters are designed, that are bombs, are you? Of course not all of them are. There are some accidents, very few and far between, but the, the, the law of averages when there's a plane go down is it's not mechanical. I'm a commercial pilot, yes. fixed-wing and helicopter. Right. You start up jet engine, planes shouldn't crash. On law of averages, is it's not an accident. And it's not pilot error. The law of averages today is it's sabotage. And the insurance companies know it. Richard, you and I know that with um, Lockerbie, Scotland, Pan Am, yeah. Pan Am, that the insurance company, of course, the, remember, <laughs> the insurance company investigators find out the forensics before they're fudged because insurance company claims acts of war. And if they can prove acts of war, which they do, they don't have to pay the airlines. The airlines go elsewhere for the coverage. And people in insurance, the reporters and investigators, you can talk to all the insurance in investigators. They come up with a story that goes before the board of directors. And uh, the Toronto Star, on, uh, uh, I think his name was Picton, he published on a Sunday morning uh, that, that in Lockerbie, Scotland, plane uh, crash, 
the um, the Pan Am board received the report that there wasn't going to be a, uh, the insurance company wasn't paying the company for the loss because it's an act of war. And as opposed to an act of terrorism, <laughs> it was an act of war. So what's the difference, an act of terrorism or an well, act of war? Well, if you're an insurance company and it's a, you can prove act of war, you don't have to give them two hundred and fifty million dollars and more for a seven four seven. But if it was an act of terror, terror is an act of war. Okay, but it was an act of terror, we're told, ostensibly, right? Exactly. It was a Libyan bomber, so there's no secret there. But you're saying that- It's it... an act of war, and they don't even have to pay off. And we and they published that. They published the, the insurance report years later. Okay, so what so happened- the insurance company proved that it was a, not an accident. It was an act of war. It was a terrorist act. It was a planned event. Well, we know we knew that from the get-go out of, out for Lockerbie, but what about Swiss Air 111? What, 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 what did the insurance- uh, claims on that. I mean, if it, if they did, they know. Of course. It, and so, of I course. mean, is there a way of, of tracking that down? Uh, what was the was there an insurance <laughs> payout on it, or was it an act of war? Well, you know, you've got censorship at low levels, so now you're asking for more documents that that are going to be probably destroyed. They're not going to leave evidence. But if oh, I'm remembering our, our conversation uh, I mean, uh, years ago about uh, the, the Pan Am, uh, yeah. what you were saying is that the insurance companies. Um, they made a distinction between an act of terror and an act of war, and that that they didn't pay out because they categorized Pan Am Lockerbie as an act of war, meaning it wasn't what we were told, a Libyan terrorist putting a bomb on that plane. This was an actual, this was something else. This was... Uh, it's a state secret that the ruling elite hope you don't learn. I mean, the conspiracy theory, that's, uh, that's, that's been a... It's, it's, it, what's happening, these things go on, and they're covered up. And so you're looking at the cover-up. And, and the cover-up starts to fall away. And you see what's really happening backstage. Why? Uh, I mean, if if this was a bomb, if it, uh, I mean, how does that get covered up? I mean, who gets to the TSB? I'll who? tell you what happens all the time is the forensic, the, the, when, when the coroner goes to testify, everybody burns their notes. It happened in the JFK assassination. It happened with the RFK assassination. <laughs> all these guys. It happened with this, with all this. The, the, the forensics are fudged. Richard, just like the Oswald, the picture in the backyard, it's fudged. When he's but holding it, the rifle. The forensics are altered. They took the palm print for the Manlicher Carcano off the Oswald's corpse long after he was dead to try and prove that it was connected to him. The forensics have always... Well, they did that in the JFK been... movie, Oliver Stone's movie. Well, that's what happened in real life. Did, was it? Yeah. Okay. How do we know that? Roger Craig said so, Dallas police officer. He lost his life. He's on the JFK death list. Okay. But but in this case, Swiss Air... Flight... He's on that list. Yeah. Okay. Swiss Air 111. Yeah. If it was a bomb... Um, I mean, how do you hide that from eyewitnesses and investigators? And and uh, who's going to see it? The planes up at up at can't be seen in the sky by the naked eye. Mm. It happens invisibly. A submarine launches a missile and takes it out. The thing is, what I remember I never... the uh, the missile that hit the World Trade Center came from a submarine. I mean, it's been reported. It's guys behind the scenes are in the sub are reporting it now, like a lot of you know that you've you, there's a lot being reported, and the public just aren't told. Let's uh, let me um, 
talk about some of the, some other air disasters. We'll, yeah. we'll take a time out here in a second, and when we come back, let's let's talk about some of the other famous air disasters and and uh, that we were told were Ron mechanical Brown. mechanical failure, bad weather. Yes, you want to you want to talk about Commerce Secretary Ron Brown, who was um, killed they, in a plane crash in in Serbia. Listen, they, we'll, we'll take yeah. a time out, and then we'll we'll get to that. Nelson Thal in studio, media scientist. If you want to get on board and uh, and talk about uh, the uh, the airline disaster as a tool of assassination, you can get on board at four one six three six zero zero seven forty and toll free from Maine to Minnesota, Toronto, south of the Carolinas, 866-744-740. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Whether we're talking Swiss Air 111 or Pan Am Flight 103 or TWA 800, the common denominator is uh, that, well, we weren't told the entire truth. Uh, or at least uh, Nelson Thal would um, uh, concur with that. Our media scientist is uh, here telling us about what really went down uh, back in September of 1998 when Swiss Air 111 went uh, into the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Halifax, killing all 229 aboard. Uh, and the, um, the TSB, the Canadian Transportation Safety Board, uh, said that after a four-year investigation, it was a fire. Uh, Nelson, a few days after that uh, air disaster, went on a Toronto radio station to report based on his conversations with Pierre Salinger, former ABC correspondent, press secretary to John F. Kennedy, that it was a bomb. That was the first any of us heard that from Nelson Thal. Uh, and then on September 14th of this year, an ex-RCMP uh, officer is now saying that he believes he has evidence it was a bomb. Again, according to Thal and the late Pierre Salinger, the target was rogue MI6 agent Richard Tomlinson, um, who many of us first heard about when he started uh, talking about MI6, MI5 involvement in the death of Princess Diana a year earlier. We mentioned Pan Am Flight 103, uh, which was um, just a horrific uh, incident. This was a, uh, it was a Boeing 747. And uh, went down, of course, over Lockerbie. Total fatalities: two hundred and seventy. Now, officially, the story was it was a, it was a it was a Libyan terrorist who put a bomb on on that on that plane. But you told me something else about Flight One Hundred Three that 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 was that was one Western intelligence group trying to knock off another one. What was the what was the unofficial story behind Pan Am One Hundred Three? It's all part of uh, Iran Contra. Um, uh, basically, CIA was sending men into the Middle East 
to try and um, uh, negotiate the release of the hostages, and they were trying to use weapons as a uh, a trading chip. And um, uh, they entered into doing some deals with these guys that was illegal, and a second CIA group team flew was flying home to report on the first CIA team, and they were on board the Lockerbie Scotland flight. And what was happening was the the CIA was basically uh, hiring Iranians as hitmen. And uh, when they found out the team was going back to report on them and tattletale, they used those same hitmen to kill their own team. So a wet and team. And that was John Picton of the Star wrote it as a front page story on a Sunday. Uh, that's the closest it got to um, to the public, the media, the mass media, the electronic media, the ones with the oil soaked, you know, the oil soaked spy riddled monopoly media. They didn't pick up the story just like they didn't pick up Salinger's story. You know, they they censored him. Okay, so um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, Ron Brown. This is going back to 1996. You had um, he was then Commerce Secretary under Bill Clinton. 34 other Americans uh, on a plane and it crashes near Dubrovnik in Croatia. Um, there was a lot of suspicion that, that that was not, you know, it was bad weather ostensibly, crashed into the side of a mountain, killing yeah. Brown and others. Yeah. There were rumors that, uh, that, that Ron Brown was actually, um, uh, the cause of death, death was a, a bullet to the head uh, and so forth. What, what, what can you tell me about, um, about Ron Brown's death that we, we haven't heard? Well, the airplane sabotage report at that time was that they were in bad weather, uh, they um, altered the uh, ILS equipment. The glide path and localizer were readjusted in order to fly the plane into the ground. And um, later on, uh, Colonel Bearden uh, suggested that it was psychoenergetic as well. What does that mean? Well, um, they were able to use waves like in a microwave and aim it at people and try and take over control of the, their motor facilities. There was some controversy about the black boxes on that too. This was a um, this was a corporate jet, basically that crashed, and um, you and initially you had the Croatian Ministry of Transport announcing they had the black boxes. Um, in fact, about a day and a half after the crash, Croatian TV announced that the um, uh, the FDR. Uh, the flight data recorder and the CVR, the cockpit voice recorder, were in the hands of of U.S. Marines. Then the Pentagon comes in, and they say there were no black black boxes aboard, which is kind of hard to imagine that on a, you know, America's number two VIP plane they had no black box. Well, what can you tell us about that? I mean, I think this is the corruption within the within the system that. Uh, the owners of the system uh, are hiding um, their chess moves. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but but why were on Ron Brown? He's just a you know he was well, a, a charming was, fellow working hard to promote U.S. business. Why would anyone want to kill him? Well, he was you know he, he was working with Clinton, and Clinton is a Rockefeller, and the Rockefellers are involved in all sorts of um, uh, behind the scenes activities that involve war and terrorism. And if you're involved with people who are in the terrorism and war business, um, often some you're going to get knocked off. 
Yeah, I mean, I mentioned he was a he was a, a decent fellow. He was uh, involved in about a dozen major scandals. I mean, he was. It looked like he was going to go to jail. Um, so, what was he doing? Maybe threatening to bring Clinton down with him, or? I don't think he was necessarily threatening Clinton at all. The word that I that we heard at the time was that um, he was an emissary of Clinton's, and it was an attack on Clinton by killing his emissary. Okay, all right. TWA eight hundred. Um, well, we had General Benton Parton, you and I, on air. Yes, and he uh, he did Oklahoma. He did Oklahoma. He was a former uh, U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff for the non-nuclear arsenal under Reagan. Who was brought in by the panel investigating Oklahoma as an expert. And he concluded that it was uh, a bomb on the inside. Inside the building. Right. And McVeigh was a patsy. And the official story by the government was that it was a bomb outside the building. Right. Right. I remember you showed me also uh, General Benton Parton, Brigadier General Benton Parton, took out a uh, was like a half page ad in the New York in the Times, New York Times regarding they... the regarding TWA eight hundred, asking for a full investigation, claiming again that it was a missile. A missile. So he put a seventy five thousand dollars. All these a number of the Joint Chiefs of Staff took out an ad in the New York Times, cost them seventy five thousand dollars, full page, explain in a, in effect saying that the government lied, and that's what it said, and. That wasn't reported on by by the mass media, electronic CNN, did they? No, uh, uh, I mean to this day. Uh, no. So the, they. What, what, I mean, there were there were stuff. many many witnesses, uh, the people that were you know, uh, um, out on the water, fishermen and so forth, who saw you know this trail leading up to the from the surface up to the right. up to the plane, claiming it was a missile. Why cover something up like that? I mean, if the Clinton administration needed ever needed. You know, prior to 9-11, a pretext uh, to go into the Middle East, to go into Afghanistan or Iraq. Why didn't they seize upon that opportunity? Why cover it up? If you see the movie Good Shepherd, the answer's there. This was a British intelligence operation. Uh, they couldn't do it themselves, so that doesn't leave their fingerprint. So they get their friends to do it. So they get the Americans to do their dirty work. And when the Americans want to get rid of somebody, they use British intelligence to do their dirty work. And who was aboard TWA 800 that well, they wanted gone? Tomlinson. The British intelligence wanted to get rid of Tomlinson. He on was TWA 800? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go back. That was yeah. Swiss Era 111. Oh, yeah. Who was on TWA oh, 800? Do we know? I'm sorry about that. Yeah. That's all right. Who did they want dead on that plane? Okay. Well, uh, in 1993, there was – we've got to go back – to understand that is in, in 1993, there was a bombing at the World Trade Center. Yes. And um, the FBI reported to Congress under oath that they hired and put together a group of Muslims and gave those Muslims the expulsion that created the bomb. In other words, the FBI testified under oath that they gave those terrorists the bomb right to blow up the world trade center so the fbi blew up the world trade center in 93 they testified to that that's not my opinion it's in the testimony yeah they claim that they were supposed to give him they, uh, phone, they, not, not only phony they, explosives and they somehow there was a mix-up and they got real explosives it was part of a sting operation it, ostensibly they, they lied to the guys told them it wasn't going to be a bomb exactly but then it became a bomb and when they discovered it the muslims went back to the fbi and said no we're not going to do it and the fbi basically threatened their life and told them to get in there and do it 
Now, that was reported, and they testified to that. So I got a question for you, Rich. If the FBI agreed that they were the first ones to blow bowl the World Trade Center, who would you look to to find out who did it the second time? <laughs> okay. I mean, come on. I got you. But what's, now connect the dots between the World Trade Center tower bombing in 93 and the, the right. WA-800 uh, years later. People involved in that operation, they wanted dead. They threatened their lives, so they took off and got on a plane. They threatened their lives. They started threatening their lives. It was time to clean up that operation. The way the Bush uh, crime syndicate works is they clean up their operations. They send a second CIA assassination team to take out the first. So the FBI officials that were involved in the 93 bombing of the World Trade Center Tower, some of them... They were on board TWA 800. Is that what you're saying? People who knew about it and had test uh, had evidence that they could bring before a court were on that plane. When you're investigating threat, people who were a threat knew too much. When you're investigating or researching, yeah, an airline crash. Is that is that the first thing you do? Is you look at the the the, the passenger manifest, see who was on that plane, who would who would they want dead? Or, or what do you look? What do you look for? The, the fact that they don't recover the black box, which is always kind of unusual. What do you look for? Well, I look to the experts, is what I do, and see what they're saying. The real experts, and quite often the experts are there. You don't have to look very far. It's just that they're not going to be on CNN or CBC or NBC or ABC. We, we Richard, this is there's heavy cover up by the mass media. I mean, the concentration of ownership has got to the point where there's no, there's not a multitude of voices. Is there's just one single big brother voice? 1984 happened long ago. All right, Nelson Thaw. Well, you called it. It would seem back in uh, 98, well, September of 98. It, really. Well, UN Salinger, yes, a bomb. Well, we'll we'll have to uh, to see where this story goes and this uh, ex-RCMP officer who's saying that hopefully it wasn't an it accident. Com- hopefully it rises and comes out and some people come to the fore. And maybe it does. Maybe eventually all this stuff will come out. I'm going to make you a bet. That story goes nowhere. We never hear about it again, except on this show or right. on Bloom and Steel Thursday nights. Uh, no, the last Wednesday of the month. Last Wednesday of the month. Yeah, bloomandsteel.com. All right, Nelson. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Richard. It's Nelson Thaw. honor. All right, and also our thanks to uh, Janet Phelan covering the um, U.S. violations uh, on the uh, Bioweapons Treaty. And, of course, Dr. Colin Ross, author of Military Mind Control, A Story of Trauma and Recovery. Uh, back next week uh, in studio... Uh, Victor Vigiani, along with uh, Stephen Bassett, discussing a UFO disclosure. And again, um, our thoughts go out to uh, Victor Vigiani uh, over the loss of his father. Our thoughts and prayers with you, Victor. And uh, let's see, what else is coming up next week on the show? Uh, let's see. It's gone. It's It disappeared up into the uh, right-hand corner of the room, but uh, <laughs> it'll be a good one uh, regardless. In the meantime... Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Thank you.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.